It's an honor to have you with us this Sunday morning here at the Antioch campus of Blue Valley Baptist Church. And today we come to the final message in our message series from the New Testament book of 2 Timothy, uh, the last record we have of anything Paul ever wrote written shortly before his death. So why don't you find 2 Timothy Chapter 4, we'll be looking at verse 9 together this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 4, we'll start in verse 9 in just a moment. One of the, the tasks that comes with the territory of being a pastor is being with people at the, uh, at the end of their lives. And, and by that, I don't mean being with them at the actual moment of death, although I have certainly been present for that moment. By that, I mean being present with people in the final days. The, the final days when someone knows that death is inevitable and the family knows that the end for their loved one is approaching. The specifics of each end, I have noticed, are different depending on the circumstances of the person and the family. But here is what I've noticed to be a common theme. The end, when it becomes apparent serves to greatly simplify and focus life for the person for whom days are growing short. It seems that all of life's trivial concerns fall by the wayside and that the person focuses on that which is only of the utmost importance to them. And that is true even of someone like Paul. I am not saying that there were trivial aspects to Paul's life. I think it is very likely that there may be no more purposeful and missional person who has ever lived than the person who wrote this letter to a man named Timothy, that person being Paul. However, even for him, as he recognized the end was upon him, you see an even more intense focus and a, a more intense purpose, and we are going to see all of that in what is literally his final words to the world that we have record of this morning. And in looking at those final words, I think there is something that we can all pick up and put into our lives, especially the week of Thanksgiving and the commencement of the holiday season. So let's just walk through this together beginning in verse 9. Paul says, do your best to come to me soon. Again, writing Timothy. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescus has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come... Bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Now, obviously, that is very personal, and there are relationships, and there are names there with which we are not fully aware. But even not knowing all of those details, we can surmise, if we know the context of this book, three things from the verses we just read. Number one, Paul is in prison. Number two, his execution is inevitable. And three, Paul is alone. Paul is alone. He's alone for different reasons, some sinister, some practical, all of them, however, discouraging. Demas has deserted him. 
He's mentioned Demas before in some of his other writings, uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, Philemon, uh, verse 24. But in those mentions, he never uh, celebrates anything about Demas. Uh, he does that with other people, but he doesn't with Demas. It's almost as if he thought, you know what, the jury's still out on that guy. He's with me. He's doing, he's doing ministry with me, but the jury is still out on him. And then that reason had finally borne itself out in Demas's leaving, fleeing the danger that is associated with being uh, with someone and known by a relationship to someone named Paul in, in the city of Rome where persecution towards Christians is beginning to build. He had fled Paul, left him there alone in that Roman prison, and went home to what was likely his hometown, and Paul was alone. Now, the others had not abandoned Paul. They had simply been forced to leave. Crescus and Titus had ministry duties to attend to in Galatia and Dalmatia, respectively. Uh, the, The ministry had to continue. They needed to go on, but still, Paul was alone, save for his faithful ministry companion, someone who was with him, it seems, all the time in the last portion of his ministry, a man named Luke, and a handful of others that Paul alludes to being with him in the final verses of his letter. Let's jump ahead and look at verse 19. Greek Presca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus, Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, in Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, so he's with him, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers, so mentioned specific Christians, and then all the brothers referencing the church, and then he closes by saying, the Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. Now, you're saying, Derek, you're going on and on about Paul, going on and on about being alone, but, uh, you know, I ran the math on that, and uh, he's not by himself. I mean, he, he mentions several people who are in, indeed with him. So Paul is not alone in a physical sense. He's in alone in a much deeper sense. He feels alone emotionally and spiritually. He feels by himself. And the reason for that aloneness is apparent if we go back and look at verse 14. Verse 14, he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself. For he is strongly opposed to our message. Alexander the coppersmith, we we don't really know who that guy is. But we surmise, based on some other writings, that it might be a person in Ephesus who had led an insurrection against Paul and Christians. If you read the book of Acts, um, the the artisans of Ephesus had risen up in, in riotous protest of Paul, his ministry companions, and Christianity in general. And the reason for that that upheaval was, was economic. He was an artisan, a coppersmith. He made idols. And if you come in and begin to proclaim a God who does not, who does not inhabit idols as the one true God, and people in mass begin to respond to that God as their God, your pocket begins to get a little lighter. And so they went to the city and said, these men are spreading dissension and they're, they're going to bring us to ruin. And we think that, that in part those kinds of charges found Paul in Rome. And this one Alexander at his first defense had been a witness for the prosecution, one that had all but sealed his fate. 
So, who are the witnesses for the defense? Let's keep reading. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. No one, not Luke, or let's just run the list, not, not Eubulus or Pudens or Linus or Claudia or anybody in the church at Rome. No one. No one had, had come alongside Paul. No one came, he says, to stand by me. It's utterly unqualified. He doesn't say most didn't. He said no one came to stand beside me. And now we see why in the presence of heartbeats, Paul felt alone. Paul's situation was frightening and potentially personally dangerous. So he's not holding it against these people for, for running. In fact, he says explicitly, I'm, I'm not going to hold it against these people, but I am by myself. So he asked Timothy to come, and for Timothy to come to him soon. He knows he's not going to get out of prison, and he knows that at his next defense, his sentence will be pronounced, and was, is, as was Roman custom, uh, it would immediately be carried out. And he doesn't want to die without seeing his son in the ministry. He doesn't want to die without family being present. He doesn't want to die alone. And he didn't want Timothy to come empty-handed. He, in fact, asked Timothy to bring three things. The first thing he needed to bring is somebody else with a heartbeat, a guy named Mark. He and Mark had gotten sideways with one another. Uh, in the book of Acts, we see about this. It had gotten so sharp that it had broken up uh, Paul's original ministry uh, group, the people going their separate ways. Mark had had decided, like Demas apparently decided, things are a little too difficult and I'm going to go back home to mommy. He probably goes back to his hometown. Mark did. But now, here at the end, he's matured and Paul's learned not to hold those kinds of things against people. And he says, bring Mark with you. Second thing he says, says, bring my cloak. That's a poncho. It's what it would look like for some reason. He had left it somewhere. It seems strange to us. We never forget things. Um, seems strange to us you'd leave something like that, but bear in mind at a time when you had to carry everything that you owned when you went traveling, he let it go, maybe thinking he was going to come back, maybe thinking he wasn't going to be gone long. Now winter's coming, and he needs, he needs his cloak, that, that poncho-like covering to keep him warm in the Roman prison. And then he says, I want you to bring with me the parchments. The parchments. Now, there are three linguistic possibilities for what he means by parchments. He could mean, bring me blank sheets of paper so that I can continue to write letters to encourage the churches. That's, that's a linguistic possibility. He could be saying, bring to me my personal records. Maybe there was something that he needed that would help his defense as he was about to face uh, another hearing in front of uh, a Roman judge. Or he could be saying, bring to me my Bible. And it is scholarly consensus that that's exactly what Paul was asking for. He was asking for copies 
of the Scriptures. So as his day dwindled, Paul wanted to spend as much time as possible with those he loved and with the book that he loved. And that's not unusual for God's people at any age, at any era. We all seem to know innately as we approach the end that we can endure anything as long as we have God's people and as long as we have God's Word. In fact, Paul believed in the Lord to the extent that, that if, if Timothy wasn't able to make it, he still had in the Lord all he needed. Look at verse 17. He says, but the Lord stood by me. Nobody else did, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. He's speaking of his first defense. He felt like even though no one else stood with him, the Lord operated supernaturally in that moment so that Paul stayed alive and Paul believed that to stay alive was to get an instruction from God that he was to continue his ministry. So he continued to try to encourage churches through, through letters and through meeting with Roman cr Christians. And then he goes on to express that even though I know that it was a temporary reprieve, I'm still going to be okay. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He has a little worship service right there in the jail. As he, as he thinks about those that have left him, he said, I still have in God all that I need. And because I have God and all that I need, I don't, I don't hold it against these that had abandoned me. And hey, how about I have a worship service? And so he does. And he has a little benediction. The only thing that's missing is you are dismissed. So he's going to be okay. Death would not be the end of him. He knew that on the other side of death there awaited the Lord he had served and that Lord would keep him to himself for eternity. And the thought did cause a worship service, but he was still alone. And he said, if you can get to me, that would be really, really good. So Paul became very focused on the only things that mattered most as death drew to a close. But I hope you've noticed that his awareness of what mattered most grew out of his great need at the moment, his aloneness. This Thursday is Thanksgiving. If that's news to you, there's still time to go to the grocery store. And we'll all gather with family and we will eat ourselves into a turkey coma, and we will sleep watching a football game. And yet, all of us carry into that holiday, any holiday really, varying degrees of loneliness. For some of us, that loneliness will be, and this is, for lack of a better word, manageable. We will have had years to get used to the fact that people who used to be at those gatherings aren't there anymore. Some, of course, will have been taken by death. Some will have been taken by life. Julie and I are at the age where we are starting to wake up in an empty house on the big holidays. Last year, we woke up Christmas morning without either one of our children in the house for the first time. This year, we'll wake up on Thanksgiving morning without either one of our kids being in the house for the first time. That doesn't make us sad. It makes Julie sad. It doesn't... 
It doesn't make me sad. It would make me sad if they were still there, frankly. But the point, the point is that life changes and things are different and you start waking up on big days in empty houses. But for others, the loneliness of Thursday will be acute because of a recent death or because of a recent divorce because some kind of loss because, frankly, just how your life has turned out. And you dread the holidays. In fact, truth be told, you dread most days more than anyone could possibly know. You are lonely. Thanksgiving Day, Christmas Day, every day. So, what can we learn from these final words of Paul that can help us remain faithful in the midst of the trial of loneliness. Two things, I think you'll see them very easily. Number one, I think we learn from Paul, when lonely, speak out. When lonely, speak out. Paul says, do your best to come to me soon, Timothy. The words that follow explain why. I feel alone. And as the text makes clear, he had people nearby, people that Paul loved and who loved Paul. But those people had become so fixated on their concerns and their lives that they lost sight of Paul. Paul is clear that this did not make them bad people, and he's clear that I am not holding it against them. People everywhere get wrapped up in their own lives and their own concerns. That is human nature. But I would submit to you that at least part of the reason that he clearly did not give in to resentment because his friends had lost sight of him was due to the fact that he spoke up and spoke out. He found the friend who meant the most and said transparently, honestly, I need you, Timothy. In silence about your loneliness, the devil can go to work. And he wants your cone of silence about your loneliness to become the fertile soil in which bitterness can grow. And the problem is that bitterness will only serve to make you even more lonely than you already are. It will cause you to push people away and then cause them to consciously withdraw from you when all they have been doing at this point is innocently done, losing sight of you, losing sight of your need. So if you find yourself being overwhelmed by your loneliness at this time of year or at any time of your life, find a close friend and offload. Tell them you are lonely. Tell them that you need them. And that friend, those friends in whom you confide, I promise you, will lay it all down and come running. Because you would. So, when lonely, speak out. And then next, when lonely, look up. Look up. This is the most important thing. Even when physically and emotionally alone, Paul knew, I'm not really alone. His God was with him. 
He focused on that to the point that it caused his heart to erupt in worship. In the midst of a very dark time, he said, I know, I know that God is with me. And so to facilitate that awareness that God was with them, to cultivate that upward look, Paul asked for the Scriptures. Why? Because he knew God's voice was in the Scriptures. He had told Timothy that, in fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, when he said that all Scripture is breathed out by God. This is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith, that this is more than just uh, words on a piece of paper. This is a record of God speaking through men. To the world. And he says, in order to cultivate the awareness that God is with me, I need to hear his voice. And I need to hear it in the word. And if I hear it in the word, I will remember I'm never really alone. Again, isolation. It's one of the old tricks in Satan's book for believers. If he can take your loneliness and refusal to tell others about what you're going through and turn it into bitterness, then he can very quickly take that bitterness that is directed towards others and shift it toward God and begin to whisper in your ear, He's not even there. And then He's got you. Then you really are alone because you've cut yourself off from the one who's always there. So, when lonely, speak out. Tell somebody, this is where I am and I need you. When lonely, look up and talk to God and hang on to his presence in your life. So let's close by thinking of some practical ways that we can speak out and combat loneliness. Practical ways that we can speak out and look up. Let's start with the most obvious group of people. Let me speak to those of you who are here today in the grips of that lonely, aching kind of pain. First, let me encourage you right now at this very second to identify the person that you can call and say, I need you. You've already thought of who that person is. Call them today and tell them, I need you. Second, If you found yourself disappointed at the seeming lack of awareness that those around you have manifested towards your loneliness, spend some time in prayer forgiving them. They have sinned in a way against you, but they know not what they have done. And forgive them. Pray for God's blessing. And then ask for forgiveness from God yourself if you have found yourself growing embittered towards them third make it a point to connect with your church family on a deeper level more than just your pew on Sunday morning and we do that at Blue Valley through Sunday school we have classes for everyone in every life situation and the benefit of it is that it creates an environment where others know who you are and will know what you're going through Fourth, make a plan to connect with God. On a personal level, make a commitment to a personal plan for Bible reading. Make sure you have a readable translation, then commit to reading one chapter a day at a set time. Make that appointment with God and make it a priority. 
And then finally, give some energy to memorizing Psalm 23. And at that point in time, I lost the entire room. <laughs> but it's okay. It's only six verses, and, and almost all of us know at it already. It's a wonderful passage that reminds us that we are never alone as God's people. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And when you find yourself feeling the pangs of loneliness, meditate on Psalm 23. Then when the Bible speaks of meditation, this is what it's talking about. It's not about sitting cross-legged and, and emptying yourself to the, the vastness of the universe. It's about being objective in your focus on the Word of God and reminding yourself of God's voice and who He is. And when you find yourself in loneliness, rehearse Psalm 23 over and over and over in your mind until you're once again convinced that God is indeed with you. So if you're feeling the pangs of loneliness this morning, speak up by calling someone, praying for the right heart towards those who may have lost sight of you, join a Sunday school class, and then look up by creating a Bible reading plan and memorizing Psalm 23. That's the first most obvious group to apply this message today. Now let's apply it to those of us who may not be feeling an acute loneliness this morning, but are surrounded by people who are. First, Ask God's forgiveness for becoming so self-centered that you forgot about the lonely who are around you. It can happen to all of us, preachers included. Ask for that forgiveness. And then second, reach out to all the people who might come to mind right now who you suspect are feeling loneliness as this season of the year commences. And then finally... If an opportunity presents itself, open your Thanksgiving table to those who might potentially be lonely around you if you haven't done so already. You know, we have some young families who are experiencing the first Thanksgiving away from their extended family this week, and they may be having uh, this opportunity to create their own traditions, and, and that's fine. We need to let them do that. But it might be that they're just feeling the distance right now. And having been in that situation many years ago, having grown up in Oklahoma and suddenly finding myself in rural Tennessee with a young family, that distance is very disorienting. Very disorienting. And so, invite them to spend Thanksgiving with you. Are there widows or widowers around you who might be facing a single plate for Thanksgiving? Or... Are there single people living in homes around you in your neighborhood? Will they be with someone Thanksgiving? Find out. And then invite them in. Because the fact of the matter is that we'll all be lonely someday. And when we are, it will help us to speak out and to ask someone to be present if folks around us are eager to respond and remind us all that though we may feel physical and even spiritual and emotional a distance from people, God is always looking out for us to remind us 
we never have to be alone. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please.